Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So who is the third player, and how is this like relevant or interesting to anyone today? How is it not some obscure, forgotten nook or cranny of the colonial era? Um, well, it is Afghanistan. Whoa, too soon, Garrick, too oh, soon. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I love this game, and there's so much cool stuff about it. Um, but it is kind of funny how... Even though it does seem like like it's Afghanistan too, very specifically during the early 19th century. You know, there's a cutoff period of like 1840 or something here. Uh, it's such a specific slice of history, but these are all players that have some huge, significant relevance to us today in their modern incarnations. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So, uh, hopefully that doesn't sound too boring. Because Garrick, what we're going to do is we're going to talk to the guy who made this game. Oh yeah. Now I, now he made it based on another system. Garrick, tell me what Pax Porfiriana is about without making it sound boring. Go. <laughs> Tacos and sombreros! <laughs> wow, that's borderline racist. Yeah, there. there you go. By the way, when, when you called the Afghans, the Afghan tribes of the early 19th century wily, no, that I, was also... I don't that was, I said that. I said wise, not wily. You, I, there was some borderline racism I, going on there. Too. The, <laughs> so there is, there is a game, you're right, called Pax Perfuriana, which is about, uh, about Mexico in... Well, roughly same time period, maybe a little later, um, and it is a it's another kind of uh, sort of faction game um, with uh, with um, uh, a, a different sort of a, a little. It's a little more abstract. Um, there's not a there's not necessarily a uh, a um, geography. It's it's a it's a very it's a very theoretical thing. But here, Pax Pamir is the game we're talking about and um this is kind of a, it's a kind of an offshoot i think isn't it yeah it, it feels like and uh, we'll we'll talk to him about this it feels like the developer uh uh cole Wehrle, mm-hmm. uh and i apologize he's, if i missed cole's name and, and board, yeah, he, remember developers are not like like uh computer games the develop, uh, designer is the designer and the developer is the guy who who makes sure that all the stuff works the way it's supposed to work that's so confusing. Yeah, I, I can't remember yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, at any rate, Cole has done some really cool things to the Pax Porfiriana system, uh, which we are going to talk to him about why he did them, what went into those decisions. Why is Pax Porfiriana not my game of the week, but Pax Premier is? Because, Garrick, I love Pax Porfiriana. Um, there is some weird historical specificity going on there, even though there is some weird abstraction with geography. Uh, and I feel that... And I wouldn't say this to Phil Eklund, the guy who made Pax Perferiana, or even Cole Wehrle, the guy who made Pax Premier, but I kind of feel like Pax Premier has, in a way, obsoleted Ooh. Pax Perferiana. I know, I know, that's uh, terrible. But, that's kind of a mean thing to say, but I like Pax Premier that much. Well, the thing is, you know, obviously this is a game about uh, Afghanistan, but Pax Perferiana is a game about Mexico, and, you know, that's a different <laughs> Game. I mean, that's a different setting, right? I mean, do, would you would you say that a game about uh, D-Day can be the same as uh, you know D-Day in Europe can be the same as an invasion of like a Pacific island or something like that? Uh, I think you're trying to trick me into a certain answer, mm-hmm. so I'm going to say no. Oh well, D-Day at Peleliu can be very much like D-Day at Omaha Beach. No, but it's not because it's Pacific. Theater. Oh right, see, there you go. I will say, though, the thing I love about Pax Porfiriana, this is, I have huge gaps in my historical knowledge. I mean, there are things I really care about in terms of history. There are things I don't know much about. I, for a long time, asserted that nothing interesting happened in American history between the Civil War and World War I. Mm-hmm. 
basically there's like 50 years there where, eh, who cares, there's nothing, you know, it's just a blank right, period. Right. Uh, Pax Porphyriana was the first step in disabusing me of that yes. notion. So, yeah. Hopefully there's so, any more steps. And, and also, as far as anything interesting happened in, uh, I recently read, and I wish I could, you're, you're great at this, I wish I could remember the name of this book. It was historical fiction about soldiers in Alexander's army during his campaign in Afghanistan. Shoot, and it was a, a writer who's really good at historical dramatization, historical fiction, and it follows these soldiers, and they even like meet Alexander the Great at one point, uh, and it's Afghanistan. That's significantly uh, before the time period portrayed in this game. Which is why I was going to say, for a long since then, I would have thought, hey, nothing interesting happened between Alexander's campaigns and, say, the Russians invading Afghanistan in, was that, 79. Mm -hmm. uh, Pax Premier has disabused me of that notion. I'm glad games can be so educational. <laughs> they can. Let's go talk to Cole about this. Uh, and then, Bruce, you and I are going to come back and talk a little bit more after we spoke with Cole. Sounds great. We start with the uh, with the the, uh, the genesis of the game because this is cold. This is your first game, so it, right. it's always interesting to know uh, mm -hmm. how somebody came about making their first game. All right. right. Okay. Sure. Um, so when I moved, so really, I mean, th this game is connected. I'm trying to think about the right way to go about this. All right. So when I moved to Austin, I went. I, I lived in an apartment on the north side of Austin, and there was a game store called Great Hall Games. Which, you know, is, is like a lot of game stores in many respects, lots of old games, sort of, you know, one of the more well-established game stores. But uh, very first day I went to an open game day there, and within about 10 minutes I found myself playing a game of Lords of the Spanish Main. And I had never played a game that was, you know, had hand-cut-out cards and that looked like that. I mean, most of the games I've played have been kind of in the, the post-Mayfair era. Mm hmm and it blew me away. It was so much richer and better than anything I had played. And the next week I came, and it must have been a few weeks after High Frontier came out, that I just happened to go to this game store where there was a big Eklund community, and I found myself playing a lot of High Frontier. Hmm. And I think I wait real quick. Can yeah. I ask his Lords of the Spanish Main a, a Phil Eklund game? I'm not sure. Yeah, it, I don't know. It, what that it is. is Phil Eklund's weird pirate game. If you ever wondered okay. what is the thing that connects Lords of the Sierra Madre to Pax Perfuriana, and why it became a card game. Lords of the Spanish Main is the is the missing link. Okay. Uh, it's a very strange, crazy, wonderful pirate game. Um, and, you know, the next week, High Frontier must have come out. And one of those days, I just spent my living stipend at the end of the month on just cleaning the store out. I bought Origins and Lords and just kind of anything they had. Wow. Um, and for the, I mean, my, that first year in Austin, I feel like I played 18xx games and I played Phil Eklund games, and that was pretty much it. Hmm. And so when Perfuriana came out, I had already played Lords of the Span uh, um, Lords of the Sierra Madre and loved it. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that he was going to try to like combine it and shrink it and make it work in that small format uh, seemed really compelling. Mm -hmm. And so when it came out, I think in 11 or, t or 2012 maybe, uh, it got constant play with a hmm. small circle of graduate student friends and some other people I had met at the game store. And we were just, we were playing it and talking about it and thinking about it. Uh, and over the winter break, I decided, because I, I liked Lords of the Renaissance a lot too, and at the end of Pax Perfuriana, the first edition rulebook, there's this little box that says, if you have an idea for a game that'd be like this, you should submit it to me. So I made uh, a version of Pax Renaissance. Uh, which kind of worked. Mm -hmm. 
um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I had ideas and I had things that I wanted. Like I had arguments about the Renaissance I wanted to make and that seemed like a good way of doing it. And so I gave it to Phil and Phil looked at it and then he gave it to his son, which looked at it. And we started this long development cycle and the way a lot, and apparently this is the way a lot of, uh, development works on fills in where you kind of like have the rock you're working on it and when you feel like it's gotten to a point where you're not sure what to do with it you pass it on to somebody else hmm. by the time the design came back to me i kind of didn't recognize it although hilariously <laughs> the epigraph i have an epigraph from brodell um that i put at the head of the rules and i think it's the only thing that is still in the pax renaissance rule book hmm. uh that you had put there that i had put there everything ah. else is gone everything else okay. is completely gone uh but during that, the course of that uh, renaissance, there were lots of problems, um, which we, we can go into, that were kind of complicated. And during that process, uh, he was working on Greenland. And so I was helping a lot with the Greenland playtesting. Play uh-huh. And it was there that Phil and I had a lot of very, very deep back and forth about how Greenland was going on. And as Greenland was finished, or, or it was being finished that winter, I started working on Pamir. Hmm. And so he had planted the idea for Premiere in about a year earlier. We were talking about something uh, just in, in Google chat, and he was asking about my research, and I talked about how I was working on Afghanistan at the moment uh, and just trying to sort through some things. Uh, and he said, oh, well, that sounds like a great idea for a game. He apparently had been wanting to make a Lords of Central Asia for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I didn't really know how to do it. And then as we were working on Greenland um, – I was just talking to a, a friend on campus um, about his research into uh, into Anglo-Indian politics in the 1820s and 10s, mm-hmm. and it it struck me that if you if you wanted to make a game about the Great Game, that like there might be a way of doing it. But okay, or rather, I should back up a bit. The reason I was having trouble turning it into a game is because I feel like if you're making a game about the Great Game the James Bond syndrome, the idea that like the action is with the people like the intelligence agents on the ground Mm -hmm. and that we should sympathize them and orient our entire subject position around the people who are doing intelligence work, Mm -hmm. that it distorted the actual political reality. Like even if that stuff was happening at some level, Mm -hmm. the people with power were the native power centers in Central Asia. And as soon as I had that realization, I thought, oh, this is the angle. You go from the bottom up. I see. So the, the, the games. I wanted to ask about the the books that you were reading because um, I mean I only have two books about this and I, they both seem to be taken very much from the sort of Russian British perspective. There's Tournament of Shadows sure. um, and um, the Great Pop Game. Kirk. Yeah, yeah. And and those are the. I mean, both of those are written from a from a perspective of you know right. here are these British secret agents and here's the Czar's guys and they're you know this back and forth and 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 I I didn't really get much of the sense of the the, the existing political structures at all. Yeah, and you know, Hopkirk's book especially is is lovely. He's a great writer. Uh, but the book to read on it, like if you're going to have one popular general interest history, mm-hmm. is William Darrymple's uh, Return of a King. Okay. Because he he's a travel writer who has he wrote the White Mughals and uh, I think like the Last Mughal. So he's he's written a lot about 19th century and 18th century India. Um, but he ha- he speaks the languages. He's spent a lot. He's spent a lifetime working in northern India, like on the northwest frontier, and his his like retelling. I mean, he was writing it. I mean, I, I'm trying to. It has a really interesting. It's either um, an afterword or his introduction, where he talks about writing it during um, 
I think like, you know, in the, in 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. um, and having access to all of these, uh, all of these booksellers and picking up. So he actually takes a lot, he takes advantage of a lot of untranslated Afghan histories Mm -hmm. and a lot of the epic poetry they're writing in and it's fantastic because it is a very very different story okay on the other side it's on my list yeah it's great so all right well um i I feel like there's a but there's there's still a huge gulf right between i have this idea for making a story for telling a story about the you know existing afghan power structures and how they manipulated the british and the russians as they sort of fought over uh, afghanistan and actually making something that people can sit down and play. Right. Uh, so I, 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 I started with a little, I wrote a little abstract. This is just the academic in me. I wrote a little abstract mm-hmm. that said like, this is, this is the basis, mm-hmm. right? I want a bottom up history. And then I also, at the same level, it, it was strange because I had the, these mechanical ideas because I normally quite dislike tableau builders, but I thought, what if you could build a tableau builder that was also a portfolio game? where instead of people building engines that like push them in different directions over mm-hmm. the course of play, they get more thoroughly like interwoven with each other. Mm-hmm. So I wanted a game that was very interactive, that pushed players together, mm-hmm. um, and that tried to collapse that kind of like game uh, genre difference. Hmm. So I had that, and then I had my little political statement I wanted to make about the, lo- the local power centers and like what it takes to build a stable Afghan state. Because the, the thing about this particular conflict that, even folks who play the game don't realize, you know, the Afghans won. Um, they won and they built a state that lasted for, for quite a bit. Right, they're independent. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they're not a, they're, they didn't go the way of the Caucasus. And, right. uh, and, and India is, is India and they're not. So, I mean, and the British are gone. So, yes, I agree. Yeah, so, and, you know, I was reading, you know, I was, I was just sort of like reading general political theory and thinking about, okay, what does it take to make a state? So I had criteria for how those things would work. Mm-hmm. And then when I went out to making the game, I'm trying to think about the process because I, you know, the very first deck of the ga- cards, I had two lists. I had a list of just all the personalities and things that I wanted in the game. Mm-hmm. But the first couple design iterations, uh, all the cards were filler. It was like Intelligence Agent 1, Intelligence mm-hmm. Agent 2. Mm-hmm. And so because I just was trying to get the deck proportions right. And I mostly played it with my wife and then played it with a couple of friends. Uh-huh. The early iterations were very strange, very different from what the final game was. Uh, there weren't player tableaus. There was uh, tableaus for the three emperors, uh, empires, and the players would play their cards onto these three public tableaus. Uh-huh. And then you, you'd have cubes on it to show ownership. Uh, and the game was very negotiation-heavy uh-huh. um, and was fun in a kind of loose silly way that could be very easily broken mm-hmm. if you told players that you wanted them to break it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I worked on it all through the winter and made some progress, and it got to the point where um, I wasn't sure exactly what to do. Like it, wasn't, it wasn't working. I was finding that as players were getting better at the game, it was becoming less fun, mm-hmm. because as soon as you would start to lose, you would just break. You, you'd break the game in one direction or another. Mm-hmm. And then over that summer, um, I didn't touch it at all. I spent like three or four months. I didn't look at it. I worked on a game about running a boarding school and I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I did, I, I was teaching full time mm-hmm. and my time was kind of monopolized. And then my brother moved, uh, to Austin and stayed with us for a year mm-hmm. or a little less than a year. Mm-hmm. And he has been playing games as long as I have. And we have very similar tastes. How long is that by the way? 
Uh, since I was 10 okay. or something. So I, you know, my sixth grade year in middle school was the year that I played lots of Battle Cry. I played my own version of Squad Leader, as mm-hmm. in I, ha- I had the game, but I'm right. quite sure I didn't understand the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so, you know, I've been, s- since middle school is when I really started playing. And, and my brother, who's five years younger than me, uh, was in those games too, as a little mm-hmm. first grader. Um, so he was living with us, and we were able to like you know it, it, we were able to work on the school game we were playing lots of splatter games and you know lots of other phil's games and then i'm part of a, a chat league on board game geek the gelatos and one of the people just randomly asked like oh how's your afghanistan game going and i thought oh, i haven't thought about this in a while but just having someone ask about it every week for a couple mm-hmm. weeks i re- revisited it and then uh, we just we just got to working on it, and it was my wife and my brother and I, three players. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'd have a friend come over, and we played it every other day for fall, all all of fall. And by the end of fall, I uh, I tossed Phil a, a draft copy of it, and he he sat down and played it within a week, and then bought it within two weeks. Hmm. So now I want to ask you said something in there about uh, you know you knew what political statement you want to make, Tom. How do you feel about games and political statements? There's no way that games can have political statements, right? <laughs> every his, every historical board game is also a historical essay. Yeah. Right. So sure. Yeah. Uh, and and that's one of the one of the ways that I lead off teaching this game. I, I have a group that is relatively casual, and if I were to tell them, "Hey, we're we're going to play a game about this time period in this region," they would uh, probably leave. Um, so so the way I, I start is with this political statement that okay, we're in in a a place. That is just being shown interest in by by these these global empires, and what we're trying to do is is manage these empires and decide which one's going to win. And you're basically holding the tiger by the tail, and you're just trying to ride it over the finish line. Uh, and if you sort of express it like that, uh, I think it sounds more interesting to people who might be more averse to that particular slice of history. Is given this sort of political overview, uh, and and to sell it that way. Um, and so I, I think that's a big help, and I, I've had I've had a far easier time bringing people to Pax Premier than say Pax Porphyriana. Why do you think that is? Uh, because, and I don't know if this is a fair assessment, Cole, and I, I'd be curious what you think of this. Um, because I think that in teaching Pax Porphyriana, uh, and this is true of, of a lot of Phil Eklund's games, as you're teaching it, um, th- there is a lot of uh, almost trepidation about how well this is going to work. Like a Phil Eklund game it is almost a, uh, a, a science or a sociology or a political essay first, and then the game comes in later, and as you teach it, there's a lot of like head-scratching, like, well, how is that going to work when I play it? Um, with Pax Premier, as you teach it, I think there are a lot of concepts that you've introduced here, Cole, the, the average board gamer is like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, I want to try that. And, and, and to be specific, it's things like the espionage and how it has a geographical component with moving the spies around. Uh, the closed economy is always a great hook. When I tell players, you know, if there are three of us, I tell them, okay, there's only ever going to be 12 rupees in this game. You know, nobody's going to, and that's not entirely true, but for the most part, this is a closed economy. We're not just taking money out of the bank. If you have eight rupees, that means that we don't have eight of those eight mm-hmm. rupees. Um, so uh, also the, the way the topples are kind of cleaned up, uh, the map in the middle, uh, you, you know, having that map board, 
with Pax Porfiriana, this idea of the three uh, regions, the two regions of Mexico and then the, the U.S. border, that's abstract and that's, there's nothing on the table to show that. Uh, but with the six location cards in Pax Pamir, that's super accessible. And to also show them, okay, these cylinders are armies and these are going to be roads and these are your tribes or they're spies if they're out here. Um, so when I, when I sit down and teach and look at Pax Pamir, I get a sense, and I don't know if this is fair, but I get a sense that someone looked at Pax uh, Porfiriana, looked at a Phil Eklund design, and was determined to sort of smooth off some of the rough edges and make it more palatable to a more casual audience, and I don't mean that as a slight. Um, is, is that fair, to, to say this feels like a game that somebody looked at Pax Porfiriana and was like, well, dang it, I love this system, I want to introduce it to more people, so I'm going to... I'm going to uh, reduce a few of those pain points. Yeah, okay, so it, it's completely fair, and I actually, I don't know if it worked, and and I'm, I'll tell you exactly why. Well, so, I'm going to disagree with you no. if you say no, by the way, so okay, go ahead. Well, so, <laughs> and here's what I mean, so when I, when I started it, this game was, believe it or not, like designed as a 45-minute, 60-minute game. Okay. Or even faster, like, because we had gotten our, our Perfuriana games down to like a 90-minute, two hours if we're playing with five players and maybe one person's new, and we wanted something shorter, and we wanted something that scaled better from two to five players. Because with Perfuriana, we the three players great, the four players pretty good, and the five is the market is so chaotic. It's really <laughs> it, it's still fun, but it's a it's just a different kind of thing. Um, so when I started, I wanted I I completely agree with you, Tom. I wanted to streamline it, and decisions like there's only one type of card, and actually the the other thing that we did is when I was working on this. Um, so I did all the graphics and art for it, and we spent a lot of time on like what icon system is best. What like ledge of I mean, I, and I would just like I would go to um, I, I would go to, to game clubs and I would just have like a couple different sheets of icons and just ask people like, can you tell the difference between these? And just get, got feedback on it. So the ergonomics of the game I wanted to be very on point because Phil's games. I mean, I think especially true something like High Frontier. It's not. I mean, it's complicated, but a lot of the complexity is like an ergonomic issue. It's an issue of usability, uh, and th there was a better way to set it up. And I, I mean, I think that Perfuriana is no stranger to this. Where, here's where I think I, I ran into trouble, because I think that when I teach Premier, when I teach Perfuriana, Perfuriana to me is a pretty easy teach. And what I do when I teach it is I just, I, I, I spend a lot of time talking about the victory condition, and then I say, this is an enterprise, this is a partner, and don't even look at the other cards. Don't worry about them. We'll talk about them as they come out. And gra like we have a kind of rolling start. With Premier, the version of that is to say, you know, here's how the playing of the cards works, here's how the economy works, here's the victory, but don't worry about the special actions. And I think that Premier, like, there, I think that Premier requires oftentimes more of a time investment. It's about a 30 to 35 minute teach for me, whereas Perfuriana is like a 10 to 20 minute teach, depending on the, the people I'm playing with. Um, but I know that Perfuriana is... Perfuriana can be more frustrating to play because you can easily find yourself in a depression, find yourself without any money, and just sure. be kind of floating. That, that does happen in Premiere sometimes, and the biggest complaints I got during playtesting were from players who got themselves stuck through a bad play. And I think it's more like Perfuriana might be the f more fragile game in that respect. Um, but I actually, I, I waffle on this. Um, I played Perfuriana a few days ago, and I came away with that game thinking, God, it's elegant. 
which I don't think I had ever like maybe enunciated before, but it felt, it just felt really clean. Um, and I, it might've just been that the cards that came out tended to be the easier cards. Um, I'm not sure. It's one that it's one that I'm not uh, I'm not sure about because I feel like the overlap in the systems and understanding the two tiered victory condition where you need the empire to topple and then you need to have the most influence. uh, Players have a lot of trouble with that. And I think where you can see this is when the topples come out in a game of new players in Perfurion when a topple comes out, the player like the, the play will slow a little bit in Pamir. It'll sometimes just grind to a halt. And so I th- what do you mean grind to a halt? I like mean, the game ends because someone won? Or it's, because, it's not that the mean? game ends, it's that the player's turns... Oh, the purge. Yeah, the, the, they, well, it's not the purge. The, the, okay. the toggle comes out, and players stop playing, and they really have to analyze the situation. Oh, uh, the sort of the, anal- the yeah, math. Right the, the, right, the math. And that's happening because they hadn't been thinking about victory before the topple came out. As players get better at the game, I'm sure you've seen this, right? You're, like, you, you, you're waiting for the topple, and so you already have a sense of posture. Uh, but I think that speaks to... Like, Pamir is easier to play, but a little harder to understand. Yeah, you had made a comment. I'm just going to jump in because I want to jump exactly on that. You had made a comment in the first podcast that you did at Culture Bites Back, which we'll link, by the way, uh, on this podcast. I think it'll be very interesting for people to listen to, um, that one of the problems with the Pamir design was that you really had, when you first brought it out, you had, people had no idea where they were, right? They just sort of played, and at the end, they're like, oh, that guy wins. Right, mm-hmm. and I still have I I, I'm, I I still feel a little bit like that, but obviously I've, I've only played it once, so I'm 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 not the uh, but that, but that's you're saying that the players are also not thinking they're not thinking about that or they haven't tracked it, and then all of a sudden now they're they're sort of focuses their their attention on oh my gosh we have to figure out who's winning. Well, we've only got so much bandwidth, right? Like you can only think about so many things. So mm-hmm. what usually happens is I explain the victory condition right before, before when I when I teach this game, I explain the victory condition, I explain mm-hmm. the course of play, mm-hmm. and then I explain the victory condition again. And what I found is it almost doesn't even matter when I explain it a second time mm-hmm. because when the first toggle comes out, I'm going to explain it a third time, I see. then probably a fourth time. And it's because the other systems are interesting enough that they're taking all the cognitive attention. Mm-hmm. And when I say they close the comedy, I can see the players are thinking about it, and then they kind of miss the way the, the victory works, mm-hmm. um, even, if you, even if you play through it a little bit. Um, and then when the toggle comes out, they kind of have to like relearn that moment and kind of mm-hmm. walk through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, what, what I, that, that's, that uh, just to say that, that that's, a, that's a common response. Well, what I because I, I anticipate that, and in, in the I, I think I've gotten this with up with three different groups, uh, and what I'll do when, when teaching it, and you're absolutely right, Cole. In a in, in teaching someone a game, the victory condition is is really something you need to put in the in a player's head, so they have a sense for why they're doing what they're doing, for what they're trying to reach for, um, and a couple of things help in Pax Pamir that I think aren't necessarily in Pax Porfiriana, uh, and one of them is those loyalty cards. Uh, one of the things that, that I'll lead with is say, okay, you're not going to win this game. What's going to happen is that one of these three empires is going to achieve supremacy at a certain point. That is the main thing that matters. That is what's going to end the game because then whoever has the card for that empire is basically riding it to victory. So every now and then when we're playing, I'll just kind of stop and say, Okay, you know, you have this loyalty card, you have this one, and then you have this one. So if a topple card were to play right now, here's who would win in each of the four modes. It's just every now and then sort of take stock before a topple card comes out to say, okay, here's how each empire is doing. 
this card clearly shows who's going to win with that empire. Uh, I feel like those loyalty cards are a good tool to remind players, you know, here's, here's who you're, you're throwing your lot in with. You know, even though your guy is also going for the Afghan empire victory, you don't have that green card, so you're not going to win. You know, that guy's going to win because he's got the card. Until you get it from him, he's going to win. Um, so I think there, there are points along the play that in addition to teaching, you can also sort of fold in, hey, here's what would happen if, if victory were to, to be determined right now. And they're designed a little bit like cognitive shortcuts because you can look at that opening loyalty bid and have a pretty good sense of how the game's going to develop. And then you yeah. can kind of be keeping tabs on the loyalty as a shorthand for the influence game. And it's one of the reasons why, like, but, but that difficulty in terms of like assessing position is one of the reasons why uh, the most common playtest report I got, and I, that I guess I, get, I continue to get as just after-action reports, is everybody was excited about the game, they set it up, they played it, and it was over in a half an hour, or it was over yeah. in 45 minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, That's great, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's, it happens constantly. And it, but it's interesting because when the game came out, that there was a group in Portland which played this game a lot, like mm-hmm. 30 or 40 times. Mm-hmm. And they found a problem, which is the original, the published rules are quite permissive in negotiation. The living rules have, have constricted it a little bit. And they've constricted it because if you have four experienced hands at the table, you're always going to the fourth topple. And in fact, you're always going to the tiebreaker. So the tiebreaker became mm-hmm. the entire game. Um, and while, while that's interesting in and of itself, we found that if we, if we restricted negotiation a little bit, it allowed the game to have, a, have some probability of ending at any of the four points. Um, but a part of me also like, recognizes that you know, you in, a lot of groups invest a lot of time in learning a game like this. Mm-hmm. And for many groups, the game might only ever come out once. And so one of the things that I've been doing in the living rules is working on an alternate victory condition, which I think, I mean, at this point, I'm not sure, it needs a little more development, but at this point, if there were ever to be like a second edition like Perfuriana get, I might even include the alternate condition as the standard victory condition. Because what, what it does, I mean, it's quite simple. Um, basically, when a topple is over, uh, when a topple is successful, you get a victory point. So it's a victory point system. You get victory points for every influence you have in that empire, and the game ends after the second consecutive topple from the same empire. Hmm. And what that does is, you know, after the first topple, someone might get six victory points, and someone might get three, but now we're going into the second topple, and that person with three knows that he doesn't want to help the other person. So it kind of slows the victory point calculus. Mm-hmm. And because it gives people little victory points, I mean, they can think about, hold on, like it's a standard trope of gaming, they can they can start thinking about it more like like deltas and like train game. Well, I'm not earning any victory points here. I better jump ship or something. And I found in practice that new players love it, and it really helps them get into the game. Hmm. Now, how did you restrict the negotiations? So the original negotiation rules are quite permissive. They allow the transfer yeah. of cards. What we did was um, you can. So what we did was simply say you can't exchange resources, but uh, if you take the purchase action, you can purchase a card from another player's hand. And if you take the gifts action, you can give somebody money. So you can still move things through the game, mm-hmm. but it costs an action, I see. which which stops uh, last-minute collusion. Because there, there are things that happen in the games where everybody pulls off, puts all their resources behind somebody mm-hmm. and can always yeah. stop the, the topples. Yeah. And it, it's fine, but with, with really good players, you'll always get to the tiebreaker. Hmm. Well, and I'll, I'll also, when I'm playing uh, with a new group... And as a topple appears, 
and we look at, okay, who's going to win? How can we stop this guy from winning? Invariably, people will ask, well, can I just give him my money and help him? And I've, I've sort of, as a house rule, said, no, no, you can't do that. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to keep it from being... Uh, from from dragging on in the sense that okay this guy set up a victory you guys can't just all co- collude to 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 drag the game out and stop him from winning and I'll do that in a first game uh, just because my experience Cole and this has happened with each of the three different groups that has played is that I introduce the game going in everybody's like well it seems awfully complicated I don't know but a few turns in they're like oh okay things click really quickly. The first topple tends to, to go to whoever's played the game most, mm-hmm. gen- generally me, because I kind of know the setup. And then, because it's over quickly, and this rarely happens with games, Cole, then it's like, okay, let's try again. Like, everybody sort of feels like they want to jump back in mm-hmm. and really try. And, and for the most part, when I get a game to the table, once it's over, people kind of have this game fatigue where they want to try something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, if PAX Premier ends after that first topple, which is fairly short... I think players are like, oh, okay, I see now how the systems work. Now I want to go back in. And that's, uh, so that's one of the reasons, too, I say, okay, no negotiating. You just got to let the cards fall where they fall. Right. Uh, and, and that was, I mean, that was almost, so the reason, I mean, I, I, that, that, that warms my heart, because that was exactly my, that was my experience with Perfuriano when we played it, where the very first game that I played, someone won on the first topple, and everybody at the table said, okay, we should play this game again. And then we played it again, and the same thing happened. And they're like, all right, let's play it third time. And I remember when I played I thought, how many games have I played three times in a row? I mean, Paris yeah, yeah. Connection. Or, you know, they're just, there are so few where like, it's so strange that I feel like, ah, I think I need to do that again. And the, I'm, I'm really interested, just as a kind of working question, in the – I think that I would put Premier in a pretty difficult teaching category. Like any game that takes 30 minutes to teach for me is like I'm the higher echelon for my groups right now. Um, but once play begins, there are usually few rule questions and things flow pretty well. And I'm kind of interested in that disjuncture just from the design angle, because I don't know exactly how it happened, but I'm in, like, that seems like something worth replicating because it not, I mean, when I play war games like that, it seems like it almost rarely happens, except uh, I'm, I've got this on my mind because this morning I played a game of triumph and tragedy with some friends. Hmm. Uh, and that's a game that has about a 10 or 15 minute teach. Mm-hmm. And then when you play it, there are no rules questions. Right. It plays unbelievably smoothly. Yep. Um, it's, it's almost startling. Just How for, long did it take you? Um, we, uh, three hours. Okay. Yeah, wow. Three and a half. Ended in 43. Okay. Um, By what? By, I'm just curious. Um, well, exactly. We've got one turn, but it's going to be over this turn. Uh, I think the Russians are going to take it on economic victory condition. Okay. Strange, yeah, strange things happen. I, I've bec- I'm totally over the moon about that game. I think. Yeah, isn't it good? It's just, you know, so many times for like a World War II game, um, there is this like Holy War mentality, inevitability to like how World War II happens Mm -hmm. that obscures how strange it was that the capitalists and the communists got together to beat the fascists. Mm -hmm. Like that wasn't an obvious thing that should have happened. And I think it more than any World War II game I've ever played, it understands the weird accidental nature of the whole thing Mm -hmm. and how there were certain things that unfolded in a way that suddenly you had something like a world war, mm-hmm. and it didn't. It didn't have to look that way, and it's uh, it's quite. I mean, it's almost terrifying to play as you're trying to figure out like when do you when do you declare war when you do those things. Right. Yeah. That uh, that's that's. It's, there's a real tension to that. Now I want to I want to flip that over to your game because you made a comment uh, that you had played this played Pax Premier uh, like a hundred times, and and the the historical result had happened once. 
Yeah, that's, so, that's true. So do you feel that there are sort of, I mean, you had this long discussion. I mean, we could go on forever about, you know, your idea of historicity and realism and, and sort of designing, you know, what, what you put emphasis on, uh, you know, why, why you would want to emphasize something. But let's just stick to the idea that what is it about your, if you wanted to force this game into a historical sort of everything, it's kind of, kind of going to go the way it went historically. What would you, what, what parameters would you have to fiddle with? Um, I would, ha- and this was this is something that Phil and I quibbled about quite a bit, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I would need to set the starting tableaus mm-hmm. pretty close mm-hmm. to somewhat historically approximate the different factions. Um, I would probably have to adjust the force pools mm-hmm. to get it to set up. In what uh, way, though? I'm curious specifically. What would you have? Oh, what- sp- specifically, the uh, the British force pool should start high and then go down. Mm-hmm. Um, there should be some mechanism for that. And in the expansion cards, I've actually introduced a couple of those elements that got dismissed early. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of it, I mean, if, if I could set the tableaus to a certain state, you could recreate kind of the arc of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on what, I mean, part of it is an issue of scale. If you have a mm-hmm. game where every turn is a year mm-hmm. and you want to do like basically two generations of a geopolitical com- conflict, yeah. you're going to need lots of checks to come in and make sure the game's going according to schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, so either by like putting restricting Chrome that only allows players to do certain things in certain circumstances, mm-hmm. or by just zooming in and saying, this is a game about the first Anglo-Afghan war. Got it. Um, so really, I mean, I think that at some level, to me, when, you know, when we actually had a pretty historical result with uh, that once, or I've had, I've had to get somewhat close a couple times, but to me, one out of a hundred or two out of a hundred feels right for a game that covers about 40 years. Mm-hmm. Like it, it just seems like there are a lot of different things that could have happened, and um, that that feels like a correct r- r- result. Like I wouldn't. It's funny. But one of the other war games I really re- respect in uh, is uh, McLaughlin's The Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, uh, and I've probably played that game maybe twenty times. Really, and I've seen a historical result a couple times. Yeah, that that thing is not his. I mean, that's that's one of the things I think that that. Uh, Turned a lot of people off to it. It just seemed, fair. but it's very hard to get any Napoleonic game to be uh, to be historical because everybody knows that France is sort of this. You know, you, ha- you have to sort of are either. I mean, that's the empires in arms thing, right? It just everybody stomps France and then the game starts. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have. I mean, it's, that's the thing where the history is so in your face that um, it's very well, it, easy to circumvent. And this is, I mean, this is a place for a triumph and tragedy, like intervention that somebody needs to make because i think that the fact that most of the napoleonic wars games have these like weird ahistorical bents Mm -hmm. means that there might be something that we're misunderstanding in our desire to game it Mm -hmm. that's not allowing the historical pressures to be reflected Hmm. and so i think what we're missing something that like you know if, if you could model a game where people aren't i mean when napoleon is marching around europe i mean britain is stunned people are in disbelief that this is happening and when you go into any Napoleonic War game, all you have in your mind is that map from high school history class mm-hmm. of France owning Europe. So there's mm-hmm. an inevitability in Napoleon that wasn't there in the moment. Right. And Triumph and Tragedy, I think, and the reason I bring it up here is because when you're doing it, you're like, I don't know if Germany could take over Europe. It's the only World War II game where I ever doubt Germany's capacity to march all over Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a lot of things need to fall right for that to happen. Right. And I guess I, I, like, I like McLaughlin's game because it kind of embraces like a, a kind of car- it has a kind of cartoony design aesthetic it's very cartoony yeah it's it's insane i mean you've got 
Like I've got like, you know, Danes that are somehow landing in Ireland mm-hmm. and, you know, but I think that it, there is some value to that. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, historical parameters, you know, there, there's something about the, you know, we take this idea of history because, the, you know, history happened this way. So therefore that's how it needed to happen. And, you know, counterfactual history is very difficult to evaluate. And, you know, all, all these games are really about people exploring sort of an imaginative space that they want to explore, right? I mean, there's a reason people, pl- you know, some people play Napoleonic War games and some people don't, right? I mean, I have, I know people that all they want to do is play, you know, the, La- the Labataille series, right? And, and have, you right. know, cavalry charges. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that if you ask them at any given time, what do you want to do? They say, let's play, you know, Labataille. Um, so, you know, this is all sort of, um, you know, what you put in, I guess, is what you want to get out. Um, I assume as a designer, that's that's how it is, because you could have done this game completely differently. And which is which is Tom's point, I think, that, you know, you decided to make this game in this way for a reason. Um, and I think that you discussed that uh, some bef- uh, in, in another podcast about who, who you wanted people to sympathize with. Right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and actually, like one of the reasons that I was attracted to w- working on a design in this period is just because it was, you know, Usually with historic games, if we, if you're making a game about World War II or the Napoleonic Wars, mm-hmm. they're really clear. Like you're working in a very like well worn place, mm-hmm. and people people know what to expect. They have all the tropes in the back of their mind. Right. And I didn't want to just make a game. I mean, I, I liked the idea of making a game about Afghanistan in this period because so few people would have reference points. Mm-hmm. And that would, I mean, it's, I, I wanted you, to, you got a bunch of emails saying, Hey, you missed this or you missed that. I mean, it didn't all the Afghan yeah. like so, scholars come out of the, well, the people who knew about Afghan history just came out of the woodwork. Well, it was the, it, it was a, a group of people that don't exist in the U S but exist in Britain who are really obsessed with colonial history and clo- specifically colonial war gaming. Okay. And though uh, that was the biggest body of people that I heard up from, and I've never met one of those people in person just because <laughs> I do my gaming on the side of the Atlantic. Right. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I wasn't the, the game in some way. Well, the, the game in some way was a game for them, um, but it was also just to, I, you know, there, there is a there is an additional political imperative behind this game, which is that, you know, there is something about our post uh, 9-11 period that is causing people to be very sloppy in their history of the relationship between the West and the East. Mm-hmm. And so going back to an earlier encounter and fleshing it out seemed like a good way to, you know, undermine, but also like cause some, 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 inter- I want people to interrogate their assumptions a little bit about Afghanistan. That's interesting. Um, which I, well, what did yeah. the, uh, the, the British colonial historical, uh, grognards have to say about Pax Premier? Um, there were, there were a couple different lines of the, of the critique. So first of all, they, they seemed to really like it and they were happy that it got a game. Um, but there were, there were two bodies of concern. So one concern was, um, very small factual errors, the range of the gun, the, you know, stuff on, on the flavor text, which is great. I'm happy to learn from people who know about more about military history than I do. The other body of complaints was chiefly about my treatment of the British intelligence infrastructure as mostly uh, as not. OK, so especially for those who haven't played it before, uh, this game is filled with British spies who almost never work for the British. And the British intelligence infrastructure and their the foreign office um 
they were mostly just making it up as they went along. Which, if you think about the realities of what it might look like on the ground, uh, that was a place for local political powers to use those agents against each other and like to, to, to sort of work the system backwards. Um, they were really unhappy with that, particularly the fact that like a, a British agents can find themselves providing information to the other side. Uh, they didn't like that. Mm-hmm. They didn't like uh, – I wrote on the William Hay McNaughton card – uh, that he mismanaged the conflict. I heard from two people that were <laughs> staunch defenders of him. Um, I stand by that comment and kept it in because he did mismanage it. I mean, you, I mean, it was a complete mess. You had uh, the only people who really had a good on the ground, uh, like the, the people who had the, the good intelligence, were unable to communicate it to the people above them. Uh, and also were had had their own blind spots. I mean, there's hardly if you were to look at the individual agents, there's hardly an agent that's free of blame in terms of what they get, what they were communicating when they tried to uh, to to withhold it. I mean, I was um, I was at the British Library uh, when was this? Maybe last year, and I was reading some letters between Alexander Burns and McNaughton. Uh, Burns being kind of like the man on the ground in Kabul, McNaughton. Uh, at this point, he was in Kabul as well. And uh, it was clear that Burns thought he was an idiot in these letters, uh, but also wasn't doing a good job trying to, to to fix the situation. Like, he had kind of written it off at that point. And he also, Burns, I mean, to be critical of him, I mean, you see, Burns sometimes, I think he comes out like this in Hopkirk's book, Burns is like is uh, is sort of like a little golden child who sort of saw it all coming. Mm-hmm. Um and and who had a very good understanding. I mean, so, so famously, um, McNaughton and Wade are backing um, Shah Shuja Durrani, and Burns says, no, like, Das Muhammad's clearly in control. You guys are making a huge mistake. Uh, but Burns comes around as his superiors. He relents. He's in a junior position. Uh, but then Burns doesn't see... Uh, he doesn't understand one of the core dynamics of Afghani politics, which is... You have a very cosmopolitan city. You have very cosmopolitan city centers, and then you have a real reactionary uh, set, principally situated in the hinterlands. Mm-hmm. And if you, if those things get upset, like you're going to have riots, and that's I mean that's what killed Burns. Mm-hmm. So why are they upset? I'm unclear about why that would upset them more than because uh, there's a very sandboxy nature to this. For instance, the you know, the Sikhs could be working on behalf of the Afghans, the sure. Russians, or the British uh, in any given game. I guess it's a, a military card. The, the Pashtuns can go either way. Why would they be worried about, in particular, the espionage cards and not the military, political, or economic cards? Because these were, these were British citizens who, oh, who, oh, loved, who loved the Queen, <laughs> right? Um, right. And, and so it's a sense of these are our people, this is our history. Right. And I, I see, right. And right. I think that there is... I don't know. It's it's a strange it's a strange conflict because and, and you really get this in Hopkirk's book. Um, reading Hopkirk's book alongside uh, William Darrymples is really it's really telling because there are episodes that Hopkirk would give twenty or thirty pages to that Darrymples like this wasn't important. Hmm. He gets a half a paragraph, uh, and it's and because it's so much. Uh, I mean, Hopkirk is. He was a, he was a, re- a reporter like he under, right. he understood the, the region certainly in the modern context mm-hmm. but so much of his knowledge of the 19th century was coming from these very um, like rose colored uh, 19th century Victorian memoirs mm-hmm. 
I mean, he's reading The Eminent Victorians. Right. And he, he produces a book that's at The Eminent Victorians Abroad. Uh, and and the, it, it kills me to say that, too, because his books, it's a fabulous book. It's really beautifully written and fun yeah. to read. Really flows well. It's just it's fun. Yeah. Uh, but it, it has it has certain problems, and and where I where I found uh, so one of the things I, I I liked about the way the game turned out is those those problems with Hofkirk's book are not so different with, from the problems we might have today in like understanding. So this is I, I mentioned this in the other podcast, but I'll mention it again here. Uh, one of the other things I got complaints about was the fact that I don't really talk about religion in mm-hmm. Maxwell. No religion. Yeah. Uh, and that's because it wasn't that big of an of, a, of, a, of an issue. But there's a desire in Western reporting of, especially the Middle East, to turn everything into sectarian violence mm-hmm. or everything into sectarian conflict, as if geopolitics couldn't also be an element. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I wanted to to like this was a good conflict to make that argument around. Hmm. Um, because religion did sort of play a role so, towards the end as Das Muhammad is getting his uh, his little rebellion together, uh, or I mean, and his son is getting his rebellion together. But it wasn't it wasn't the central thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no Catholic Church card like there is in Ex Profiriana. <laughs> and, I, I, and I love that Catholic Church card because, of course, it's two sided, and you get both the right. social justice <laughs> church and the hyper conservative church. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, let me ask one thing that I'm curious: why you uh, this is in Pax Porfiriana. I, I think it should be in almost every single game, but it's not in Pax Premier. I don't think I mind, but I'm curious why it's not in Pax Premier. In Pax Porfiriana, when you start out, uh, your are they called Hasendados? Yeah, what are your uh, Hasendados? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, they each have a special ability. So there's some starting asymmetry where my player can do something that your player can't do, who can do something that Bruce's player can't do. Uh, there's no such thing in Pax Premier. It doesn't begin with any inherent asymmetry amongst these five uh, portraits of characters. Uh, why is that not in there? So it, it does begin with asymmetry, but in a different way. The loyalty cards. The loyalty cards. So the uh, Phil wanted me to have uh, like power, special powers. Um, but I had resisted early on any kind of special power text in the game, and I wanted – I think that the, the, the political factions, if I were to make a historic like startup variant – I guess I could do that. Um, if I were to make a historic start variant, which would essentially approximate that, uh, it just felt like it closed down the possibilities of the game. And when you go back and look at the kinds of maneuvering that was happening in 1810 – it, any number of things could have happened at the beginning. So I wanted the beginning of the game to be as open as possible to allow play, because it, it becomes asymmetrical after everybody drafts the first card. Um, and, I, and I do like starting with asymmetry and special power cards, but it was, some, it, it was, it was just one of those things where uh, Phil kind of eventually relented and gave me, me the call on it, and I told him I, I thought the game was more open without initial asymmetry. Uh, when I started working on the expansion... One of my initial things was, oh, like, what if we put a bunch of special power cards in this thing uh, and just sort of see how it worked? And, uh, and I suppose using those, you can get something close to, like, the different special powers. But I, I, do, I do like that as, as a mechanic. I just felt like the game was already producing such a wide variance. I kind of wanted to preserve sure. that variance because mm-hmm. there is a point where as you add special powers that you start constricting what the game can do. And I wanted players to feel like, that choice of loyalty that they were making, uh, it, the main thing that mattered was the market and not their individual power. Sure, sure. 
Uh, Cole, I have a question that's driving me crazy. Uh, I have presented this to everyone I've played it with. Nobody knows the answer. Uh, I guess I could go online. There might be an answer here. What the heck is on the back of the map cards? What are those little patterns with the colored <laughs> rectangles and the letters? Obviously, there's an A for Afghan, R for Russia, right. B for Britain. It, what on earth is going on there, and why is it there and not explained to me? I feel like it's some test that I've failed. <laughs> it's, a, it's the deck manifest. So those are all the cards in the location, and the size of the block is the power of the card. Oh, espionage, economics, mi- Oh, deck and then the uh, the letters are for the Patriots. Now, um, I, oh. I just I, I stuck that in there for it was a very late edition, and there are actually there are a couple errors on it, which like bother me that that happened. But I just I, I should have triple checked. Um, but it, it pretty much tells the full story, and I stuck that on there because the deck in Perfuriana is extremely asymmetrical. People don't recognize it, but like when you go for a command victory in Perfuriana, there are no command cards in the deck. There are three times as many revolution, or some crazy number of more revolution cards than command cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you start playing, you just kind of think of them like, ah, oh, they're just four different colors of the same basic thing. And so I wanted to find a way to kind of hide, or not hide, but a way to show that, like give people a snapshot of what the deck looks like. Yeah, because, con- I mean, it's clear now, yeah, Punjab, like the British are all over the Punjab <laughs> card. Uh, and you can, you say that, I think, at one point, uh, but yeah, it's clear looking at the back of this now. I'm now realizing. Yeah. Yeah, and it, there are a couple of small errors on it, but it was something that we um, that I wanted to, to slide in there just because I like I like infographics, and I wish more of them were in games. <laughs> so I just kind of yeah. threw it in there. Hmm. The I have, and the little squares are the impact things. I'm just realizing. Yeah, yeah, those, yeah those like are, there's a garrison. There's a uh, yeah. Okay. There's a leverage. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. There you go. So it's just a quick, and it, it reveals certain things about the way the cards are set up. Like, there's nothing in Kandahar, which is something that people realize once they play the game a little bit. Kandahar is this kind of, like, empty spot. There's oh, oh, right, like it's this much smaller. Yeah, look at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all that white space on the right. end. And the Transcaspian is huge. And they have different... All the regions have kind of a different character that come out once you've played a few times. Yeah. Uh, I uh, thought maybe this was some solitaire variant that didn't make it into the manual. Yeah, not Like, lay like, <laughs> these cards out in this color. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's you know it's funny. The, the, I did try to make a solitaire for this game, but I just I'm not a solitaire gamer, mm-hmm. and so I find it very hard to think in that way. Well, think in that way, but also think about what might be compelling for oh, a solitaire gamer, um, because you know so much of my work is solitary. So I game time is not solitaire time. Right. Um, but uh, Ricky Royal, uh, I can't remember his Richard Wilkins, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, who has a great video series, uh, he developed a solitaire variant that were, that's in the expansion. Uh, hmm. It's just a few pages long. When's the expansion coming out? Uh, it comes out at this Essen. Uh, and what, it's an interesting... It's, it, it was a really interesting thing to uh, develop because I, it almost happened like accidentally. There were just, I had all these notes. And whenever you're working on something, writing or other, I'm sure you guys know this, you are, I always feel like there's a window for like when something's going to get done, mm-hmm. and if it closes, it could be a decade right. before you revisit those notes. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of felt like as I was thinking about rebuilding my computer and maybe putting the new windows on it or whatever, I was like, you know, I've got all these InDesign scripts, I have all these files here, I should probably finish this. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was when we were designing Premiere, the size of the box, I mean, I, just, I had it posted above my desk, like everything needs to fit in this box. 
So the entire time we're working, it's like 60 cards. This is the exact amount of cubes we can fit in that box. Mm-hmm. And when I came back from the factory, the way they had it packed down, that the box didn't actually close. So Phil had to pay an extra like eight cents a copy to have them go in and like rearrange it so the box closed. <laughs> really? Yeah, before they shrink wrapped it <laughs> because awesome. we really got right to the edge. But the expansion is um, it's a few more Empire cylinders. So the Afghans start with six, the Russians start with eight, and the Brits start with ten. Mm-hmm in those force pools and then it adds about 60 cards and the cards are there are a few more political cards because people want more of those and the, and there should be a little more in the deck and there are event cards like headlines and the events do all sorts of crazy stuff including adjusting those force pools to put more british units in the force pool take away british units hmm. um so like the afghan force pool starts very low and then slowly grows over the course of the game usually mm-hmm. And is the idea with the events that people have to buy them, or they fall off the market and execute? They, they execute automatically, but you can buy it to execute it earlier or to cancel it. Okay. So it, oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, Pax Porfiriana, right? And actually, I did introduce, yeah, so similar Pax Porfiriana, although I think if those fall off, they don't happen, uh, their status quo. Uh, the other thing that the, uh, the events add in is a couple of the religious movements I put in as events, but the way they work is when the religious movements come out, everybody puts half of their money on it on that card. Um, and what it is, because it really, I mean, I call it, they're called rupees. What they are is just followers. They're just political capital. So you lose half of your followers to a religious movement. And then after the topple, they get redistributed evenly with the remainder getting discarded. Huh. Um, so a couple of those are in there. And then the, the two big things though, the one thing are capability cards. And these are cards that look, they're totally different from game cards and they all have a single persistent ability and a, uh, an activation cost. And the activation cost is like a... <clears throat> I, I, was, I was playing a lot, of, a lot of Dota and going through the compendium and doing my little like game challenges and badges and all that gamification mm-hmm. shit. Uh, and the way these cards work is if, you, if your Tableau fulfills the activation requirement, you activate the capability and you have it for the rest of the game. So an example is there's a card that's a harem the activation is four economic stars in your tableau, and when you activate it, you have an infinite hand size. Hmm. <coughs> or there'll be another. There's another one that's uh, the reputation for cruelty, which if you have, a, I think you need three military stars to activate it, mm-hmm. and it allows you to take the discard action as a free action. Hmm. So they're all kind of like game breaky in the Pax Perfuriana way, um, but they introduce some really nice asymmet- asymmetry to the players, where you're essentially kind of cosmic encountering. You're gaining these little game-breaking powers. Now, now, Cole, this is a little unfair because I, when I like a game, uh, I immediately sort of cross my arms and I'm all harumph about adding new stuff. Uh, it's like, you know, it's good as it is. Don't, don't mess with it. Uh, so to hear you say those little achievement cards, at first I was like, oh, yeah, that's a cool idea. But to hear you describe it, here's my concern. Um, I love, and I don't think there's a counterpart for this in Pax Porfiriana, but but I love how each of the, I guess they're called modes, but each of the the stars has a secondary ability uh, based on how many are in, are in your tableau. Yeah. For instance, the espionage determining your hand size, the politics stars determining your tableau size, the uh, economic stars are your uh, tax shelter, and then the military stars break ties. Uh, so if I can somehow get that harem with my economic 
stars right. to give me an infinite hand size, haven't you therefore undermined the importance of the espionage stars? Right. So, yes. And, <clears throat> but espionage stars needed undermined it a little bit. Um, <laughs> hmm. okay. so now, why? Why do you say that? Because uh, control of hand size and control of influence and the actions that you get, it's strong. I don't think it's too strong, but or I mean, that's not true. I think it is a little too strong. I think it's certainly playable. It works fine. But there were, I think that in the original game, the political, the, the political mode and the economic mode are a little underpowered. Um, and it's fine. The game works with a little, with the modes being a little asymmetric. Um, but what I wanted was for more radical strategies to be possible, where okay. if you get a harem you can build a commercial empire and be quite competitive in the game. And so, like, now that there's a path that's opened up, and it's not, uh, it's not to, re- to reward players for everything. I just wanted, there were a lot of players who missed the card comboing of Pax Perfuriana. Mm-hmm. And I think I found that I missed it a little bit, too. And it allowed me to explore, like, more... Uh, there was just... There, first of all, there was a lot of history that I couldn't put in the game that I wanted to put in the game. Like, the, the, re- the resolution of the wars, for example, is very simple. It doesn't really um, take into consideration things like guerrilla warfare, differences in force size. Um, but through these, like, special cards, I was able to kind of, like, put in some of those concepts and have them work in small ways. But a lot of the cards are designed to allow tableaus of single color to have a right. little bit of extra oomph. So, and actually, along that line, the, the biggest introduction, and this was something that was almost in the original game. It was almost in the original game, and we cut them to the last minute for, for card reasons. Um, but I wanted to bring them back, is the, the Wazir cards, which I actually I put up on BGG, so anybody can download the, the Wazir cards and take them. Well, what are the Wazir cards? So, are those? Uh, so there are two things. Uh, the most recent living rules... Uh, I have mixed feelings about living rules. I, as a player, I hate them. Mm-hmm. I hate the idea that a game is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, like, I, if, if, uh, if, if I understand, especially now, that when a game goes out to a wide audience, it gets exposure and it gets testing in a way that it could not have had before. And you learn things. And any game that's been able to survive more than a few years has had like updates, tweaks, balances, a little extra work. Um, and, and I want, I want PAX to be, uh, Premier to be that kind of game. So one of the big changes, uh, and this is kind of like the only big change to Living Rules, is the tax action got slightly reworked. Okay. It, because it was changed right before publication for some reason that I cannot think about. And like I, I have no. You, I mean, you can't remember, or you just hate no, thinking oh, about no, it. I, I, I cannot remember because the the last. Okay. I mean, I think this is true of all Phil's projects. The last month is completely crazy because you're just you're you're discovering small things. You're trying to fix them, <coughs> but you don't really have time to kick it out to the playtesters. So you're just arguing with each other, trying to like really uh, <laughs> okay. figure out everything. And it was lots of very very long days. Um, but we made an adjustment to the tax action because Phil said he liked that the tax action was based on the board position stuff and not based on what cards people had. So the Wazir cards, but, but it, the, the tax action is my least favorite thing to teach when I teach this game. I hate teaching it. Um, you hate teaching Pax Premier. I love teaching Pax Premier. I hate teaching the tax action. I Why? Do, well, well, how do you separate that from teaching Pax Premier? I don't get it. It's, it's the, well, okay. It's, just, it's, a, it's a mechanism in the rules as published. It's a mechanism that's a little hard to understand. 
Uh, it's a hard to visualize thematically. It's it, it, it holds thematically, but it's a little like counterintuitive. It doesn't seem very elegant. Um, so whenever I teach it without fail, and I mean, I've taught the game many, many times, it's the last thing I teach. I, I usually wait a couple turns till I teach it. Um, but we, when we were working on, when I was working on the expansion, uh, I was talking to my brother, and he was like, "Oh, why don't like why did you change the tax action from the old one? It was way easier." And so that night when I taught a, a full new table, new players, I just taught the old tax action, and it was way easier. And I, like, I'll never go back to it. But hmm. he, he, here's the changed tax action: uh, in order to tax, you have to rule the region. You need at least one tribe and more pieces than anybody else. And you get to take rupees equal to the rank of the taxing card. So that's all the same. Okay. Uh, who can you tax? Uh, anybody who has a card in that region. Oh, as opposed to having to look at roads and Correct. who's loyal to the guys and, with this road. Right. Who has, whoever has a card in that region, and if there are any market cards of that region with money on them, you can take the money from those market cards. Oh, I do maybe kind of like that. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's a better, it's a better rule. And I'm content by saying Well, you know what? You say it's a better, but one of the things I do like about the current tax action is how the roads have this sort of risk-reward bit to them. Yeah. Uh, and that if you're going to participate in the economic development of the region, you are going to be vulnerable to taxation. Uh, I, I kind of like that. But I guess that also applies to owning a card in a region. Well, and, it, and what it did is – right. And, and, and this was actually one of the reasons why it was important is there were instances where someone would have a ton of Kabul intelligence cards. But they couldn't be taxed. Now, right, like, they just didn't build any roads. Right, they didn't, they didn't build any roads. And, and that, that's ahistorical, because the intelligence agents are the most vulnerable to, to local power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, that fixed it. And then so what the Wazir cards do, do um, and these are six cards, one for every l- l- location. The ruler of the location gets the Wazir card. They get passed around. That's like whoever favors. has the most tribes? <laughs> yeah, whoever has the most tribes plus units. So they get passed around like favors. Okay. And the Wazir cards, so they make the tax action even simpler because if you have the Wazir card, you can tax. But the Wazir cards have a couple of special actions on them, which you can play. They kind of float. If you want to use those special actions, you just put it on a card already on your tableau, and you use those special actions equal to the rank of the card that's hosting the oh, Wazir. Sure. Right. Uh, but one of the acts, so um, the four regions, so you may know this, but the different regions have, um, they're asymmetric in terms of regime change. So, like, Persia is where almost all the intelligence war regime changes cards are. So whoever's king of Persia really gets to control whether or not the blue regimes come out. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so what the Wazir cards do is the Wazir cards have a regime change arrow action. It costs six. Um, so it's a little more regime control. But the other thing they have is they have the cons- a new action, the consolidate action, which allows for the construction of new units, uh, which is really costly. But it it changes the, the the game in a really I find a very compelling way because what happens is you really compete more for who's ruling the region mm-hmm. because then you can start using your consolidate action to, re- to recruit local armies and what that does is it was it starts it churns the money a little bit faster through the game mm-hmm. because if I get control of Kabul I might build a tribe so that I'm like I'm securing my control and then I might build a couple armies. And I'm using special actions to do that, the purple actions. And now my, that money is getting paid out to the market. Mm-hmm. So other people are able to get in it uh, to take that money up. And then Kabul is cre- – there's an identity being created around the various different regions based on how the players with the Wazir cards are acting. 
Sure. So it sharpens the regional uh, the regional identities uh, and create. It's just that we we started playing with them. We kind of haven't stopped. Um, just because it's. I do like that a lot because yeah, right right now when you're new to the game, there's no sense for you know why would I care about a card in Punjab versus a card in Persia. Uh, you know that all of the all of the the regions at the beginning of the game are completely equal to one another. I mean, there, there's no sense that there's anything distinct right. about each of them. And yeah. and what ends up happening too, and I've seen this happen in many many games, is uh, there will be regional fights. So it was amazing. I was I was listening to a couple of players who were playing on the table next to us, and after the game when they were talking, I was just eavesdropping, and they said, "Oh, you know, I you know I got." I became ruler of Persia, and the other guy was ruler of Herat, and they were both recruiting armies, and they were fighting, and it was Persia versus Herat. But they, they were – like that war wasn't a Brit versus Russia war. It was the, the war between Persia and Herat. Now, they had different loyalties, of course, mm-hmm. but that kind of like regionalism is something that I wish Pamir had a little more of, and the expansion was a way to put it in. Um, that being said uh, – I, 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 Tom, I, I agree with – Whenever, whenever an expansion comes out for virtually any game, I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I, I clam up because I, I feel like, I mean, I fell out of love with Fantasy Flight like back in high school, and it was because Twilight Imperium was like a game that was like a little broken, but instead of fixing it, they released an expansion with like ten, like different sizes of band aid, mm-hmm. and they didn't yeah, tell you yeah. which was the right one, and then they yeah. released another expansion with like fifty more band aids. And, and the, the, the problem with that too, Cole, is that they're they're immensely successful for it. Oh yeah. I mean they're raking it. I mean it, it's part of their their commercial success is this approach of basically releasing a game and then breaking it and breaking it and breaking it is rewarding, right? Uh, financially, and yeah. yeah. And I would say, I mean, the reason. So when I was early starting to work on Premier, so this is what I'll say about the expansion. When I was starting to work on Premier, I was thinking about it as a 180 card game. And I was thinking about there being the game cards, the capability cards, and the headlines. They were right there at the beginning. But as soon as Phil told me the size of the box, it was not going to be possible. <laughs> and so if, if Premier ever gets a second edition, I would lobby hard for a bigger box and to have everything as, like, one thing. Um, yeah. Although I love small boxes like that. The, the, I know. The, when the Lord of the Rings, the confrontation turned into that big box and that monstrosity I said forget this I mean I still have my cop but I mean gosh I mean we I mean I feel like those big box things are are kind of made for 12 year olds right I remember when I was when I was you know 12 and I went to you know Christmas the bigger the box the better right yeah. it's just like oh look it's giant but I mean it just it's the, I don't want these giant boxes there's no need for them no I and I we live in a very small apartment in Austin and the games that have been most the most resilient in my collection are like my winsomes hmm <laughs> Because I can see them all in a bin. Yeah, and it's also when you bring it out to new players, uh, the bigger the box, the more the more doubt they yeah. have. Like when you bring out where this little tiny box, they're like, "Oh, okay, that looks cute, charming. Right. I can wrap my head around that quickly." Uh, yeah, so so it's less daunting to bring out a small box to a new group. Right. Yeah. It, it depends a little on the audience because, but for, because for some gamers, like Premier is this unassuming, like it looks like a light game. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's so funny because when I when I uh, when I, I remember when I showed what I uh, I brought home a couple of copies for my parents after the game came out, and they'd heard me describe the game and they were like, "Oh, it's in such a small box." <laughs> that was their first response. It's like, "Oh, they're expecting this big game, and it is a big game. It just yeah. it really folds itself up." Yeah, yeah. Oh. Tom, do you have any any wrap up questions uh, that you'd like to? Ask? I'm just. 
I am just so glad that it's cleared up what the back of those map was on the back of those map cards. It, it seriously was driving me crazy. I was like, "What? This isn't documented. Why is this not explained in here? What, what is going on?" It's like crop circles. Uh, it is like crop circles, or like the ancient pyramids, yeah, or aliens. Sure. It was a huge mystery, uh, and now the blinds are soft. Yeah, it's, okay. yeah. Uh, here's here's one thing that I, I do wonder about. So. One of the reasons that it's it's easy, once you teach it, there aren't a lot of rules questions. You mentioned that before. You've done a great job of baking everything into the game somewhere, whether it's on the, the little personality cards, uh, the clean iconography. The one thing that I have a problem with, actually it's two things, but they're of a piece. Um, there are rules, and I think they're pretty important, for coups and overthrows yes. um, that are weird little finicky kind of exceptions but they're a huge part of the significance and the vulnerability of political rank. Mm-hmm. Um, did you struggle with those? Because I feel like you can't really take those rules out. It's important that they have – that the, the political mode, the rank of those, that many stars, has this element of vulnerability, and you can subvert it a certain way. Uh, how, how much did you struggle with coups and overthrows? Tremendously. We wanted – I did not want those rules in there. But they had, oh. to, but they had to be in there. Like, uh, okay. so I, yeah, I think, I think in virtual because there are like you're, you're right. It's coups, overthrow, and then the fact that the spies can be on the Patriot Band and the Prize Band. Those, although that body of rules, those are things that Phil put in, and he put them in with good sense, and they exist for a reason. But I, they. They're difficult for a couple reasons because one, they're the definition of Chrome. They're a rule that only exists in like the one little paragraph, the bottom of the rule book, and you and you, you just have to have them in mind. Uh, they make sense thematically, but not in a but not in terms of gameplay, right? Like if you because normally your cards are not attached to the pieces on the board, except in the one right. instance when you lose your high you know your high rank uh, political card to a bribe, mm. and so after. We, I, I kind of relented. I said, "Okay, well, we, we can like the, the rules should be there." But we had this separate problem with how to present them, um, and it's something that I don't know. It's something that I'm, I'm, I still struggle with a little bit because they that that's a hard edge that I would have loved to find a way to smooth out. It's definitely something where you know I explain it. it. It's one of those things that once I've taught someone the game, that's just a little bit that's a bit too much. That I think players don't quite hear that, um, or that they've already their sort of memory buffers are full. So when I try to introduce that rule, it sort of gets crammed at the top, and you can't quite shut the lid on it. <laughs> and so right. then later, when I when I roll it out or when it happens, I kind of have to apologetically say. Well, look, remember this rule. You now have to discard your highest political card. Sorry. Uh, It's like a tough thing to keep in mind. Um, And I just kind of wish there might have been some sort of – I don't know how you would do this – some sort of visual indicator or special icon or – yeah, I I don't know. I mean I do think it's an important rule, but it's just tough to – yeah, have people keep that in mind. And they, you know, it, it's one of those things that it's another thing that I would have to look at really closely if there were ever a second edition to see exactly like how to put that cue or if there's another way of dealing with that. Because here's the, th- I mean, the thing about them that, that bothers me is that they're chromey, they're hard to remember, but they do happen a lot. And like, yeah. I mean, the the overthrows, especially like it's a very important part to understand that your political cards, if you lose your tribes, they're done. 
and to like have two cards of the same location if you can. Um, but yeah, there is, I, I mean, it was something that I really, I really looked at and maybe it's just a matter of, uh, adjusting the, the card layout a little bit, uh, and, and what, finding one of the a place thing, for them. Something that, it, like, I wonder if the way that, uh, the, the church card, for instance, we've talked about before, how that kind of looms over every game of Pax Porphyriana, if maybe there's like some sort of a card representation of, mm-hmm. even just a card that spelled out the rule, that just sat right. on the table, I, I don't know. Yeah, um, just, uh, or, you know, well, the one thing I would, I would have added, I think, um, now that my allergy to like added text to cards is maybe a little more subdued, is just to write like along the band in a small text, like, oh, this is a political card you've got, like, be in, like, keep in mind coups and overthrows. Just so it's like it's oh, like, like, a, like a, yeah, or a political or, or iconography, like you've done also, like a special icon or something, maybe. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. just a little visual reminder that the, the politics cards are not safe in the way the other cards are safe. Right. Why do people have a hard time with uh, with pushing the spies to one of the bands on the on a, a patriot card or a prize card? Um, it, it's less that people have a hard time with it as much as they like they just forget about it. It's just one of those rules that I have to I remind people a lot about. Uh, over the course of the play. Um, and, and Phil, it was also a rule that Phil introduced fairly late. Um, and it was something that I can't remember exactly what it was addressing. It did fix the thing it was addressing, but it was weird because like they don't count for influence while they're on your own tableaus. Although players seem to intuit that quite well. Right. That makes um, sense to me because if I control, say, you, you know, a certain card, I can't use that card. I can't spy on my own yeah, card because I already know everything. Yeah. But it's just yeah. one of those things that as people are moving the spies around, they're thinking about card position and not about where the prizes and patriots might be. Right. Um, well, that, that's the thing is I, I think, you know, the spies, as they're moving around the table, you know, a spy's coming towards me. Is it coming to assassinate or bribe my card? And without those little those bands and this idea that, hey, you want your spy to live on a band, uh, as the spies are coming around, you ask yourself, well, wait, is it just coming to live on one of my bands, right. or is it coming over here to kill and, or take one of my cards? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, yeah, there's this sense of, hey, every spy, everybody can say, oh, my spy is just going to live on a band. It's not coming to mess with your cards. It just wants to live on, you know, the British side of your card. But it, it's just going to stay over there and be friendly. Don't worry. Uh, and that, um, that, 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 that spy movement system, so this is something I, haven't really, I didn't really mention to you guys, but one of the things that happened in the development of the game is there was a period where the cards were connected to the pieces on the board, where instead of putting, when you put a three-star card, card down, you put three pieces on the board. Instead of doing that, you just put one piece on the board, and that piece was the three-star card. And... Like the intelligence uh, infrastructure was very important in that system because you needed spies to do everything. You needed your spies to help you move your armies around, to, to do any kind of attacking at all. So like the intel rule is actually a vestige of the days when you needed spies to attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happened, Phil was playing the game, and uh, the problem was that the game worked fine, but it was impossible to visualize. You just couldn't see, like, okay, that's those six cubes in Kabul. Like, three of them are my spies. This guy's got some. So it was, <laughs> you, you, had to, you had to hold a lot in your head. And then Phil was like, you know, I, and actually it wasn't Phil. It was, it was Matthew's son. He said, well, why don't you just cut that, like, cut the connection. And so, and, and Matthew was the one. We had, we had a, a kind of an emergency Skype call that spring. And Matthew said, like, cut the connection. What if, like, a spy out here is a tribe, an army is like a road or a, an army, and he just sort of said that, and then Phil said, okay, Cole, like, why don't you just take this, and let's talk in a week. And the way that we kept the spies in the game was like building that little circuit around them. Right, right. 
but it, and it made the game a little, it made the game playable, but um, it, it also led to some of those like leftover rules. Um, so, so well, that's I can also I can also now see Cole why because uh, this is another thing not quite as bad as coups and overthrows but just as significant the idea that armies can bypass other armies if there's an espionage if there's a spy in that territory like that's this weird instance where something hugely important on the map only lives out on the tableaus and it's it can be hard to visualize hey he's got a spy there his armies don't have to worry about other armies in this particular region yeah. Yeah, and you know, and some of those were vested. I mean, because I that 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 idea that, like, what does it take? I mean, this is sort of like in it back way back what we were talking about the abstract for the game. You know, the idea that what does it mean to build a state in a region, and then you kind of scale out and be like, okay, what does it mean to win a war? How do you do that? Well, you need an intelligence component, you need an economic component. So it used to be that like any kind of attacking, you know, you had to have some kind of economic protection, and then you had to have the intelligence agents there. And it, it just got too hard to track, but we still wanted to find some place to, to represent some kind of advantage that was gained. Right. Uh, real quick, did you um, – uh, how much tinkering around was there with the uh, – I think they're called favor cards – with the special ability you get? Because this is also a bit of uh, kind of – it can be early game asymmetry. The special abilities that uh, Britain, Russia, and the Afghani tribes get. Uh, I'd say I'm trying. To, I think there were two or three iterations of those. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them, the Afghani one was set right away. The one the, that the armies are cheaper to move. Um, the British one, you know, it's funny. I can't remember what, what it was now, but there was an alternate British one that Phil really liked, and, and what wasn't as happy with, with the like you get to keep the rupee. Um, mostly the reason that one stayed is because I, like the East India Company had kind of disappeared from the game. And I wanted to, because, you know, I, I say Britain, mm-hmm. but I really should be saying East India Company on all these cards. Yeah, and that was, I mean, that was the whole point of the, of the great game, right? That the East India Company was worried that the, the Russians were going to come and, and take over India. Right. Yeah, they're and, not and, there. Yeah, well, and well, they are there. Uh, it's just, you know, right. it's, it, it, it was an instance where, um, it, because because it's a it, it's a like it, <clears throat> there is this Britain versus Russia conflict happening, mm-hmm. it made sense to kind of like say Britain versus Russia and not East India Company versus right. Russia. Right. Um, but there is a distance because the 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 British had a hard time containing the East India Company. Right. I mean, they, this is one of those uh, one of those things about the British Empire, right? To the largest extent, it's mission creep. Mm-hmm. It's mission creep and right. like this cycle where like you have the missionary going out and the entrepreneurs going out and then the British Empire just kind of like scrambling to keep everything together. Um, and, I, and, I, and it's funny saying that like I feel like in a lot of the games I've played about the British Empire that particular dynamic doesn't get shown a lot. I mean it's not really how most Empire games work. Um, so we I ended up opting to just just call it the British and kind of collapse that distinction a little bit. Um, Mostly out of convenience to, yeah, I think it was mostly just an issue of convenience and understandability. I remember we did we did some like tests on that and talking to people about it, but there was already so much being put on the table. Whatever thing I could give to players to hold on to, I thought mm-hmm. was a good thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, Cole, that is uh, about half of the talk about Pax Premier and um, and a game design theory uh, that I want to get. Too, but I think uh, launching another sort of whole uh, takeoff from this point is 
is stretching our schedule. So I'm going to just have to say that you need to, I need to come back and, and talk to you more about, uh, about things. But thanks so much for taking all this time to uh, talk to me and Tom. And uh, do, you, do you have a title for the uh, Opium Wars game yet? Well, first, thank you very much for inviting me. This was really fun. I'm happy to chat whenever. Um, the Opium Wars game is tentatively titled A Terrible Wind, mm. um, but I might come up with a better title. And okay. it's pretty much done, and it has it has a place where it's going to go, but I can't say much more yet. Okay. Well, can, I, can I just say, uh, and this is just because I play, some of the folks in my gaming group are kind of juvenile, uh, A Terrible Wind is going to, people are going to make fart I jokes. know, I know, and th- yeah. th- that is the reason it's a tentative title, because I love, <laughs> I love the title. It's actually from, like, a Chinese observer's, uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, account, uh, and I, I do like the title, but I am, I'm very, very aware of that. <laughs> and it was the first thing my wife said. She said, people are going to make fart jokes, and I thought, ah, oh, dang it. Yeah. Um, so there are other, uh, you know, um, Gladstone called it, I think, an infamous trade. Mm-hmm. So that oh, see, that's a lot. Like that right there, Cole. That I just hear those words and they're like, oh, that's a game I want to play. Mm-hmm. I don't. You don't even have to tell me anything else about what it's about. Right. It could be sci-fi, it could be fantasy, it could be railroads, whatever an infamous trade is. I want to participate in that. There you go. Well, <laughs> I, I, I will say about it. It is uh, there are no cards in this game. It was um, when I was designing it, I was thinking a lot about making a game like Northern Pacific and a game like Container backwards. So it's backwards Container plus Northern Pacific, a little bit of brass, some coin. Some just coin? Some Holy coin, just, just tossed in there. Wow, it, okay. It's actually built, um, it's quite short. I t- playtested a bunch yesterday. It's 30 minutes to an hour, a game. But um, yeah, more on, more on that later, I suppose. Yeah, uh, definitely. That's fantastic. All right, and that's at Essen. Um, that I don't know when that will come. Oh, that was, sorry. That's it. so the expansion yeah, and then the that expansion game's for, yeah, okay. right. uh, for Pax Premier is called Kyber Knives. It comes in a little bag. Ooh. I apologize for not having a box, but it's expensive to ship boxes. Yeah. So and, and Phil's publishing that. That's fine. Kyber Knives. Okay. Ky- Kyber Knife. That, that by the way, that's a sexy. Name. Yeah. Thank you very much. I like it. Yeah. Well, Cole is uh, quite articulate. I find. Uh, he, and he sure knows a lot about his game because, uh, and, and, and that's actually not uh, the case with some designers who, who make great games, but they're not able to discuss them. Uh, so. uh, I, I love Phil Eklund to death, but uh, he can be a tough, inter- tough mm-hmm. interview in that he's, um, he's, he's kind of a, a, Phil Eklund strikes me as a guy whose uh, brain is just way too advanced mm-hmm. to be expressed in simple yeah. words off the cuff. <laughs> like, I love what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's it's fun talking to to Cole, uh, who seems super articulate and eager and and very talkative. And yeah, I could have gone for another hour easily. Well, tell me about your tell me about your um your thoughts on I, I I love the fact that I could see I could I could see you just sitting there like, cringing when he starts talking about well yeah we're gonna have this expansion we're gonna change this and change that and and uh... well the thing is I need for an expansion I. When I just hear expansion, I'm like, no, I don't want one. Right. It's fine as it uh-huh. is. Leave it alone. Go away. Uh, but if you if you sell me on a particular feature, then I'm I'm okay with it. And this idea of putting more importance on each of the six regions in the map, giving each one personality. Because mm-hmm. Bruce, you and I have talked a lot about, and we've noticed in games, uh, you know, the importance of a map, the importance of right. personality, mm-hmm. of giving giving an area character. Yeah. Um, and one of the recent examples I can think. I'm so glad that. Cole, by the way, is as down on Fantasy Flight as I yeah. am sometimes. Because mm-hmm. Fantasy Flight, 
they, they, they introduce these cool designs and then they screw them mm-hmm. up. Um, one of the things they did, they had a game called Arkham Horror, which has different locations. Yep, yep. And you go around and none of the locations has much personality. Right. They're just little spaces on a board. Then they did a game called Eldritch Horror, mm-hmm. which is a world map in different areas. You got to it different ways and had different geography. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there was this board with so much character and it came alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love a board with character, with locations that matter, mm-hmm. that each one has personality. Right. So now that he's explained that he's doing this in Kyber Knives, I'm, I'm kind of a little disappointed with my PAX Premier box. I feel like it's incomplete. Mm. So, so I, I'm sold. He, yeah. You know, if you have a feature that seems that strong, that introduces an element of game design that I like that much, uh, you've won me over. Okay. So Kyber Knives, uh, I'm definitely down mm-hmm. with it now. Okay. Yeah. Now, I- I'm curious as to how your how your sessions have gone um, with uh, people. How 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 what was the response when you when you played uh, when you played Pax Premier or Pax Pam yeah, so as you call it? Pax, <laughs> I can't. Come. For, first of all, I don't know if it's Pax Pamer, Pax Premier. Premier. Like like does it rhyme with Kramer from Seinfeld? Yeah, I yeah Premier. Okay, um, it's a tough sell as I've said. Uh, you explain it to someone and. For the most part, they feel like, okay, I think I've got it, but I'm not sure. And there's all that – it's kind of discouraging the amount of doubt that people go into it with. Mm -hmm. And I sort of feel like, "Eh, did I not teach it well enough? Is it too complex? But then as they're playing and things click, uh, I've never had this go over very well. I've gotten it, like I said, with three different groups, and every group uh, has gone into it with a little trepidation after the explanation, but has been completely won over to the point where after the first game they want to play again. And that's happened without fail all three times. Hmm, Interesting. there are, however, people in our group who are, and I don't mean this as an aspersion, who are w- too casual for this. Okay. Like, there's some people that I would not teach this game to uh, who join our group a lot. So, so I think if you have more casual players, this might not be for them. But with the right players, this has never not been a big hit for me. Interesting. Interesting. I'm... Uh, I- I, I we should tell people that um, for those who don't know, you know, this game actually you're talking about maps, but this game doesn't have a map, does it? Yes, it does. Why do you say it has that? Cards. That's a map. Well, okay, but it has an actual map also, doesn't it? Well, I just said you just said it didn't have a map. It does, is, <laughs> is that, does that map come in the box? Yes. Well, the cards do. What do you what are you up to, Garrick? You're trying to confuse me. What, what if you buy the deluxe edition of Pax Porfiriana? Doesn't it have a play mat or something? It has. It has. It has an, the the reverse of the Pax Porfiriana board is the map, and you don't have to use the the, the cards. That's all I'm getting at. Okay, but there's a map. Okay, because when I think of Pax Porfiriana, that that whole like uh, what is it, Sonora, mm-hmm. um, Ch- Chihuahua, mm-hmm. and I forget what they call the America part. America, I guess. Like that's so abstract, and there's no visual representation right. of, of that unless you show people the little picture on the side of the mm-hmm. box, which nobody ever looks yeah. at. Uh, and I just love here that, yeah, you, you put out a, a, the, the cards. You kind of have to align them just right so you see which roads connect. And there's a board. Like, everybody has the, – one of the things I hate about Tableau games is everybody puts their nose down in their own Tableau, and there's no shared attention space. Right. Uh, that's so explicit in Pax Pam, Pam, Pam – now you screw me up. Pax Pam? Pax Pam. Premier. It's called Pax Pam. Yeah. <laughs> you made it up. that. <laughs> there, I love that there's a shared attention space there, uh, and yeah, it's not a board; you don't unfold it. But those six cards right. are right. definitely yeah. That, that's all I'm getting at there. But uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah I, I really like. I mean, I've only played it once, and um, uh, I, I think that it's a very uh, it, it just does all the things that that uh, you know every every single part of that game. And I, I had not played Pax Porfiriana, by the way, 
So, you know, this was it was it was completely new to me. I mean, I knew I knew Pax Procuriana, but I'd never played it. So I never really got because you, know, you can you can read all about a game, but it doesn't mean anything until you play it. Um, and I was just fascinated by how, um, first of all, how hard it was to learn the game because I read the rules myself. And then when I got some other people and we're just like, OK, this is what you do. Like, oh, OK, I get it. now. Now you just sort of sit there. Actually, when I when I soloed it, I kind of figured out a little bit better. But um, uh, I, I soloed it. Yeah. Oh, you did your duo. You did your solitaire. Yeah, multiplayer just, just to figure out, figure out how to play, right? I mean, I, I, okay. that's how I learned how to play. I just I pull out all the stuff and say, okay, this is how I make a move, and I set up the game, and and it, you know, because because just reading, this is one of those games. Some games, like you know, that the hex encounter war games, you can say, okay, uh, you know, this is a combat strength, and this is a movement strength, and this this is the odds table, and these are, you know, you don't need to even need to get the stuff out. You can just read the rule book and say, oh, yeah, these are three to one odds, and it costs, you know, two movement points to move through a forest. And then you, right. you open the map up and you just move everything to the forest. But uh, but here it's very hard to sort of to visualize the game until uh, until you sit down and just set the whole thing up and and, and things like that. So well, how, how did your game go? Um, it, our game was our game was interrupted actually. So I <laughs> so we didn't even finish. Um, was one of the players. That, what could, what could interrupt a game of Pax Premier? Oh uh, well, I was on call and I had I had a to be I interrupted it and we waited and then. The game lasted past the point where somebody else had to leave, so we just we all kind of quit and went to dinner minus that person. But um, uh, that was that was the biggest issue. And we were also we were teaching it, so it took a lot longer, I think, than it than it was than it was supposed to. But people people liked the idea, and of course we had you know we were we were we had a different group playing, and those people were all like discussing the. Um, uh, like the historical sort of uh, you know ramifications of the of the cards, right? Yeah. I, I love in this. I mean, uh, I don't. I, I love people reading card names uh, and even flavor text. I love when people care about that. Uh, my favorite game of this. Uh, a good friend of mine who, right off the bat, he he, he knows a lot about like history and archaeology. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a card in there something like the Azure Mines of Kabul. I forget what it's called, but he immediately was like, "Oh yeah, this was a valuable source of this during the certain age." And like he started reeling off these historical facts. Mm-hmm. And we were all like, yeah, yeah, Kyle, that's really cute. Uh, but then later he picked up the card and was reading the flavor text, which was basically saying what he had told us before. Really? And, and so for every card afterwards when he would play it, he would read the little flavor historical text. Um, awesome. And he, he kind of earned the right by anticipating what this Azure Minds uh-huh. card was going to have to uh, regale us with the actual flavor text. And that was one of my favorite games where – that stuff got brought out, uh, and I think it's so much richer for that. Like, you could look at Pax Premier as a great system, and it is, by the way, that could apply to, you know, you can make this a Star Wars game. Sure. You know, you could have the Empire, the Rebellion, and the, uh, what is Jar Jar? What flavor creature is he? You know this. Uh, chimp? <laughs> He's from Naboo, Garrett. Oh. But you, you could you could substitute, you could put other elements you could make this sci-fi or fantasy right. Garrick, this could be a game of thrones game right, right? well you could do that um, but but interestingly enough it couldn't be for example um a uh, an athens versus sparta peloponnesian war game why not because there are only two things no uh just imagine for instance the make the gods right the oh, they would be thing. fighting yes of course yeah well yeah but yeah they, and and then you could have those special powers cards that he kept Exactly right. Oh, so you're, right. You should be a game designer. You know exactly how to do all this stuff. 
<laughs> well, I just know how to break other people's designs by saying, you should have made this Star Wars. Right. <laughs> like anything could be. Yeah, I guess anything could be Star Wars. But, I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a system that you could imagine, um, you know, because because the essential tension that it has between you is sort of a, a – uh, a, a, Two rival factions and sort of a faction that everybody's kind of, kind of vying for the control of um, is is sort of a historical constant, I think, in a lot of senses. But. And, and right, and the flip side of that is you can easily play through Pax Premier and just ignore the historical flavor right. and still have a cool game, which is why I really liked it, the, the game where our friend Kyle was reading the flavor mm-hmm. text. And, and just sort of as we were playing, he was sort of filling the gaps where people were thinking with uh, the historical flavor that was already there. Right. And it, it was a nice vivid realization of this period that Cole wanted to make a game about rather than just a cool game system. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I mean, it, it, but it, it also sort of gets to the point that, you know, there are games, there are plenty of games that when they're cool games, there's nothing about them that needs to be like, have you played Polis? Uh, the city, the, the, isn't it's, the, it's the, the, it's the Greek the city state war thing. game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I have not, but played there's it. nothing about that that necessarily, I mean, that could be, you know, you know the the um, Game of Thrones, you know elves versus the Warhammer dwarves or something, right? I mean, did you just say elves? Oh, elves versus right, right, right. right, exactly. right. I mean, it could be so, so. There's nothing necessarily um, necessarily Peloponnesian War about it, but it, the things that it does fit very well with the Peloponnesian War, just like the things that this does fit very well with this historical situation. So I think, but I, yeah, I think if you um, if you play games that have uh, the best games that have good historical flavor tend to be really good games in themselves, and you could just have you know white, black, and red cards, and it would still yeah. it would still work. Which is one of the reasons I'm looking forward to Kyber Knives is instilling each of the locations with something distinct, yes. which I presume is also hi- historical. He's wanting to make the, these regions have some sort of historical importance, uh, like right now. And I'm so glad you explained the back of those map mm-hmm, cards. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the back of those, and you can see how certain regions yep. have more more economic cards, there's more military cards, leaning more towards the British. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that reason also, I'm particularly looking forward to him folding religion into the game. Yeah. Um, because also that, that's a distinct part of that, that historical period, that region, uh, that I would love to see brought to life more. Yeah. 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 Well, I think what uh, we need to do is we need to have this... Uh, so you get your Kyber Knives expansion, and yep. then but next time we see each other, if, uh, if, the, uh, if a terrible wind hasn't come out yet, <laughs> uh, oh my gosh! Uh, then uh, yeah, he has to do the the other one. Uh, uh, the infamous infamous trade. trade. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm voting for that. I'm going to send him an email. Yeah. Yeah, do you have to do infamous <laughs> trade? Um, but if uh, if a terrible wind, so, oh, the infamous trade can be the can be the expansion to terrible wind. Um, ter- when that kind of game comes out, uh, we'll have to play that uh, when I'm out there. So I would play. Yeah, I, this is a, day, a game that I would definitely like to beat Bruce. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. You just bring it, buddy. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yes, I am